Aussies love discovering new restaurants, and Open Table is Australia's most visited dining reservation platform, with more than 1 million hungry diners looking for inspiration each month. On average, guest booking on Open Table spend 49% more than walk ins. Open Table's world class table management technology ensures your seats are optimized front of house to seat more diners, saving you time to focus on what you do best. And it doesn't stop at the end of a meal. Open Table's relationship management tools keep you connected with your guests, helping you turn first time diners into regulars. Visit restaurant.opentable.com.au to connect with your local Open Table restaurant expert to learn more. Open Table, empowering restaurants to do what they do best, better. Consumers love delivery. The number of customers who eat Edo is much, much higher than it ever was or would be if we had chosen not to go into delivery. There's a whole world of change in consumer behavior that we need to understand. Raw, a podcast by Lightspeed and Poe. This is a podcast about the highs and lows of running a hospitality business. In collaboration with the Poe Network, which you've come to know with a conversation amplified. We have frank and open discussions about the state of the industry from the best leaders in hospitality. We aim to capture the extent of how far conversations can go. Uncensored, stripped and genuine, powerful and grounded in confidence. We unpack the unique first-hand experience from the experts tackling the very real and at times intense issues in our industry. Now let's get into today's show. Founders Dave and Stefan fell in love with the Italian street food experience, which is so different to anything in Australia, and wanted to bring some of that back home. The experiences in Italian food and sharing the joy of eating with locals have greatly influenced the style of Eto's food and the way they cook and share with their customers. Launching in 2013 with the opening of their first restaurant in South Melbourne, they pride themselves on having simple flavors and affordable yet filling dishes making pasta fresh twice every single day. Fast forward to today, and they have five restaurants, with one of them serving his delivery on the kitchen, which is going to be the major focus of today's podcast with co-owner Dave Ansett. Hey, Dave, how are you? Pleasure, Sean. Now, how did you start out with the brand of Eto, and why did you want to focus on pasta at the start? Because especially in the part of the hospitality industry that you're in, which is obviously this sort of fast food sort of QSR, why did you want to focus on pasta? Yeah, so there's a couple of intersecting stories there that my in my other life I run a branding agency, run a branding mm. agency for 30 years and my part of the agency that I looked after was, was food, including fast casual restaurants. So my business partner Stefan came to me as a prospective client initially and he had a vision for a concept that he'd seen, he comes from Alsace in the northeast of France, mm-hmm. and he had seen a concept that had grown from nothing to about 200 doors in a few years over there, which was this redefining Italian, specifically pasta, into a quick service style offering. Mm-hmm. And he really liked it, thought it could work here, and was after someone to do the branding, restaurant design, and an investor pack. And so I met and we had a great conversation and uh, had a look at this concept. Um, there were three brands in France, but Mezzo di Pasta was the biggest, had about 120 s- uh, sites around France. And that was just before Easter. And over Easter, I just, this concept got stuck in my brain and I, and I couldn't get it out. So over Easter uh, holidays with my family, uh, I spent about two days just brainstorming, modelling it, looking at the uh, at the size of the market here, at the concept, at the economics. And I re-met with Steph just after Easter had finished and said to him, good news, I've found your investor and I'm not going to charge you for your branding. <laughs> so so it, it's sort of this intersection where um, I had the, the context because of my work in the industry to see the model from a brand and differentiation perspective. Mm-hmm. And then we had this, uh, we had this 
almost this runway that was happening in France where we, we could see that there was a, a market for it mm-hmm. priced the right way. Uh, and if, and, and the whole kind of idea of redefining, reimagining pasta in it, Melbourne's got such a great Italian heritage, but Italian here had turned into either you're sitting at a restaurant with a white tablecloth and a waiter and you, you're there for an hour and a half and you're paying 40 bucks for a bowl of pasta or you're going in somewhere and it's slop and it's 15 bucks. And we, we really saw this opportunity to take this model in the middle, do really great food, really high quality food, but without the restaurant overheads mm. in a fast casual model. And, and part of what we saw in this model in France was the way that the equipment that they used, the systems that they'd developed to cook the food really quickly. So when we're humming, we'll do a, plate of pasta every 30 seconds that's sort of our volume that we that we can pump out and with the systems and and really simple ingredients but quality ingredients which is the whole secret of italian food Mm. we're able to to produce a food that is really at that kind of melbourne restaurant quality but we can do it really quickly much more cost effectively david that time was there anything comparable in australia to now what you guys have built because I, I can't think of anything that sort of compares to it. Yeah, no, there was nothing. That was part of the research I did was it's like when you see often when you see these ideas and you can't believe no one's done it before. You know, at, at the core of the concept was this idea that we'd make our own fresh pasta and that a customer could come in and pick a sauce and then match it to a pasta. And, you know, that consumer trend of controlling what you eat, high quality, being able to engage in the meal is, is such a great trend that – there was really nothing uh, before us since we, we had we had a customer who used to work in an office upstairs from our first restaurant in South Melbourne. He was a regular, he was in a couple of times a week and he ended up joining up with a mate and starting a similar concept and they, they've grown and since disappeared from the market. And apart from that, every now and then a new one opens, there's maybe three or four brands around the country who are doing something similar, um, one in Adelaide, one in Perth. Mm. And some individual stores, but the reality is, uh, unlike burgers, pizzas, fried chicken, it's pretty complex to get right and to get right consistently. Mm. Uh, on a busy night, you know, across our, our five etos, we might do five thousand pastas, and to get all of them right is a real uh, takes really good systems, really good training really good management. Mm. I want to talk about that in the podcast um, further on. What I want to talk about first though is when you open the first store in South Melbourne, because there is so much customization in Eto, which is what I love, did you have to almost train the customer in how to do that? Because I imagine the thought process must have been that they were used to sitting down at a white tablecloth and ordering what was on the menu with no customization available. And then all of a sudden you come in and you can literally change and create whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. Like was that a was that a hard thing to sort of train customers at the start? It, it was and it wasn't. I mean, Melbourne is such an amazing food city. Mm. It, the way we're embraced by other Italian restaurants, by pasta makers, but it just blew us away. Mm. But also Melbournians love good food and prepared to try things, love trying new things. So you know, we, we absolutely had a sleepless night on the night before we opened. We Both Stefan and I had these dreams of no one coming in. So first lunch to have people queued up at the door was, was amazing. Wow. But, but you're absolutely right that the reality is anytime you want to create a new concept, you have to educate and education is difficult. Yep. And you know, we think that it was about four years and three restaurants where we, where we just kind of cracked that momentum shift from kind of pushing the, pushing the, a stone up the hill to enough people now got it and we're talking about it and we're telling their friends about it that we started getting its own momentum. And so from we, we turned 10 next year wow. and uh, last year we served our millionth plate of pasta. Congratulations. And really from that kind of year four onwards, we felt that, that growth that wasn't us pushing the self-propelled growth. Mm. A lot of this podcast, obviously I want to talk about delivery um, because you guys are so famous for and executed so, so well. What made you want to go into delivery in the start and at the start of it, 
Were you guys nervous about that because you'd built a brand which was built on a customer experience, them coming in, customising their menu in real time and then and then obviously leaving? Like mm. how did you guys start your delivery journey? So we're probably in, – in hindsight, if we were wiser, we would have been nervous. But um, – <laughs> But yeah, we we have this uh, we have this thing we say, which is um, once we run out of mistakes, we'll be successful. <laughs> and and every mistake we make has to be getting us closer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the um, one of the things I think we do very well in compared to a lot of our peers is innovation, and we're constantly open to trying new things. We try them, and we track them with incredible discipline and then we're prepared to invest and then drop it if it doesn't work. And, and probably nine out of 10 end up being dropped. Mm. And so de- when delivery came, we'd already heard about, co- about concepts similar to ours in the UK taking off when they embraced delivery. So it was on our radar, but we weren't prepared to hire our own riders and buy our own bikes and build our own logistics software. So, so when the first delivery platforms arrived in Melbourne, we were ready for them and we jumped on board. I can remember us saying that uh, Foodora was the first but they were called something other than Foodora. Oh, supper, t- supper time or something? something. No. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I remember saying to Stefan as we were about to start that trial with them at South Melbourne, if this could make us $500 a week extra sales, that would be great. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we'll do about – we're projecting about eight million in delivery sales this year. So it's incredible. It was great. It was much, much, much bigger than we ever dreamed of. But we were prepared to give it a go early, and when it showed, so we hit five hundred in the first three days, and well, as soon as we realised that we had something, and and this is what we tend to do, we'll, we'll go hell for leather. If it works, we'll work out how to then integrate into the business commercially. Sure. And so. The, our story of delivery was that it's we've seen incredible growth and we've invested a lot of time and energy in doing it well, but we've spent the last five or six years trying to work out how to actually do it well commercially. That's mm. that's remains one of our largest challenges. Yeah, when when it did launch and when you did do you know three hundred dollars uh, sorry five hundred dollars in three days, were you throwing more labour at that straight away or was sort of like let's just let's just keep doing what we're doing and we hope it's going to work or were you guys in the mindset that it would straight out the gate and then just throwing everything at it to start with? Our mindset is once we decide to try something, we throw everything at it. Yeah, nice. So, so regardless of you – know, we've got a belief that we just don't want to die wondering. We don't want to look back and say, well, if we had invested more and that could it have worked, mm. we would rather inv- invest wholeheartedly at the start. Uh, and that's done with a um, some attempt at a, at a risk-reward calculation and how much do we want to spend and extra staff hours, extra investment. But once we make that decision, then we like to go full on. But, but we'll often do that in a trial center. So we'll prototype something in one restaurant. Yep. And we'll, we might prototype it just on the weekends. Or So we were trialing uh, QR code ordering well before the lockdowns and coronavirus was mm. even on the radar because we thought potentially it might be something that would change the way our customers would relate to us. We, we love the idea that you could sit at a table having a feast with your friends and not ever have to get off your seat. Like that's such a great concept. But because we're f- – fast casual model, our model is go to the counter and order. So, mm. you know, way back in 2019, we were thinking maybe QR code ordering could fit with that part of our vision. Interesting. I want to talk a, a lot more about delivery and the kind of innovation you played in that space because you don't get to $8 million in revenue in a year by luck, mm. um, you know, unless you have tens of restaurants. Um, at the moment, you've you've got five, and you're growing really, really quickly. What kind of things did you have to think about in order to make sure that you had repeat customers on delivery and actually really wanting the brand and really wanting pasta as sort of the first point in mind? Because I've done a lot of doing a lot of research on you in the last couple of weeks. Like there was some things about packaging innovation that you guys had done and that kind of thing as well. So, do you want to talk about what kind of innovation you've gone through? Yeah, so I, I think. Every significant business improvement 
is a story of a thousand things that you try. Yep. And delivery is absolutely what reads that way for us. Uh, so, um, yes, we've, uh, you know, I think in the first three years or four years, we changed our packaging four or five times. So our product, our pasta product specifically, it fresh pasta is a wonderful, it's a, it's a wonderful food type, but it cooks quickly. Mm. And then if you put it in a container and put a lid on it, then it keeps cooking. And so, you know, the difference between cooking fresh spaghetti for three minutes and three minutes, 20 is al dente and mush. Yeah. So we had to really work hard on on our ingredients and our packaging and the way we kept it warm waiting for the driver to give that meal the greatest chance of being in the best quality when it arrived in the customer's house. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, we changed our packaging three times, but we've spent hundreds of hours on researching how many holes in the top of the lid that goes onto our container. What is the right shaped container? Does it travel uh, um, better when it's deep or when it's shallow, when it's round, when it's square? All of those things, does it travel better? Does it need to be wrapped in foil? Is it better in a paper bag or a plastic bag? Like all of that, all of those, each of those decisions could end up making a small difference to the quality of the meal. Mm. At the end, do we keep it on the pizza oven? Do we keep it under a heat lamp? If it's under a heat lamp, what temperature is the heat lamp? So when we say, you know, we we go wholeheartedly, that's one one part of what we did in terms of being successful with delivery. But it starts with saying, well, how do we best understand what this thing is? And the reason we've been successful in delivery is because it starts with the fact that consumers love delivery. It, the number of customers who eat Edo is much, much higher than it ever was or would be if we had chosen not to go into delivery. So so what that means is that, is that there's, there's a whole world of change in consumer behaviour that we need to understand and then we need to understand how the platforms work and plug into that and then we need to understand the role we play and once we understand those three things, then we can start to pull apart the pieces of that puzzle mm. and work out how to get good at each piece. Mm. And that's that means we've got really great relationships with all the platforms, but especially Uber. We we believe from the start that they were going to be a, power, a powerful force. We believe in brand. And so when they launched in Sydney, I was on the phone every second week to the guys up there saying, when are you coming to Melbourne? Have you got us on the list? You know, I was a I was a right pain, but but what that's evolved into is a really valued relationship. Where if they have anything they're trying, then they'll come and chat with us. We, we put together a, um, a a group of a committee of restaurants to act as like an advisory panel, because we felt like it was a great way to make sure that we had some input and understanding in where the industry was going and. And the concept, the, the idea was always let's build this thing together, us and the platforms, and then let's work out how to commercialise it. And that was always the conversation until probably three or four years ago when I think the platforms one by one realised that their roadway to profit didn't necessarily involve restaurants being commercially rewarded more than we were. What do you think that's changed for? In the, in the most recent history, the last six months, nine months, it's changed because the investors are now wanting these platforms to, they're now rewarding profit, not growth in customer numbers. Mm. So for the longest time, these businesses that are all publicly listed were being rewarded by shareholders for pure growth. Yep. Uh, it's called it's called a flywheel model. As long as we keep adding customers and orders, then that's considered growth and so the share price goes up those investors are now calling in all of the big platforms to, to start at least showing a pathway to profitability, if not profitability. Mm. Um, Uber Global, not just Uber Eats, but Uber Global just had their first quarter of profit in history <laughs> earlier this year. Wow. Oh, yeah. And they've done that off the back of recalibrating their business model globally, Drive and Eats. Mm. And how that trickles down to Eats in Australia is charging customers more for delivery, charging customers a higher service a service fee and then increasing the service fee um, and batching. And so batching is where 
they will intentionally uh, have a driver pick up three meals either from us or from us and other restaurants and then deliver them one at a time to three customers who live in vaguely the same direction. Mm. And that makes a lot of sense from a profit perspective because they pay the driver a little bit more but they get paid three times as much in commissions and, and in customer delivery fees. But what it means is if you happen to be at the end of that chain, you could have something that was cooked an hour, hour and a half ago and it's terrible. So, so whilst it's been an important step for Uber Eats in their profitability, you know, it's become the biggest issue for restaurants and something we talk with Uber about all the time is it's now the number one complaint that I have to deal with is mm. why is your food so cold? How do you change that from an operational perspective? Because as a, as a restaurant, you've got no understanding what the pathway is for that driver. So you've got no, so you've got no knowledge if you're the first one or the third one, right? I think the maximum they do is three drops, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So with a product like yours, like are you now going, like you're now thinking we're not even going to get it to the point of heat lamp. We're actually going to make it when that driver rocks up and, and – shows themselves mm. and then we're going to make the product because we know we can make it even at peak in two to three minutes and then give the product so it's got a better chance of holding well over delivery like or it's is really, that just too hard to manage it's, it's so hard to manage if you, if you picture on a friday night um in one of our kitchens we might have 50 dockets on the go so being, 50 dockets yeah so being able to manage so that's already a long wait time yes so being able to manage um, some of those dockets, depending on when we think the driver will arrive, and, and it's something that we did uh, through COVID, we did, um, because all the dockets were just delivery. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we also have to have a, a, a care for the drivers and the drivers don't make any money while they're sitting around waiting for us to cook the food. Yeah, fair and enough. And the reality is even though we can cook a, a, a pasta from scratch in four minutes – if there's 50 dockets up, we can't keep the driver. The driver's not waiting four minutes. If we wait for him to arrive, he's waiting 20 minutes. Mm. And then that knocks on to what if he's come to us first and then he's got to go to two other restaurants. Yep. That's not fair on their customers either. So Yeah, good point. So it's um, we feel like, you know, in any improvement curve, you get to the point where each improvement you make is making less and less difference. And we feel like, unfortunately, on that – improvement curve in terms of the quality of the food we're getting towards the the point where we're not getting a lot of return for each improvement we make unfortunately mm. um, and so for us the decision we made a couple of years ago was more about well is the only way to improve quality to do our own delivery mm-hmm. which sounds like a logical and simple question to ask ourselves but when we unpacked it we knew that if the answer was yes, then there was a project the size of no other project we've ever worked on in front of us. Yeah, for sure. And so for better or worse, the answer was yes. So that's what we've been doing for the last two and a bit years is trying to build our own technology and processes to allow us to take some of that delivery load off the big platforms and into our own hands in a way that will improve the economics for us and the speed at which we can get food from our oven uh, into the hands of consumers. And that's running alongside a communications campaign we've been running for the last year through social media, through um, responding to reviews, which is dine in when you can, pick up when you can. Mm. If you want to order delivery, just understand that it comes with some compromises to food quality. You just don't expect the same restaurant quality food yeah and largely what what has the customer feedback been when there is issues with food and delivery and all that kind of stuff like the customers are customers are funny we're we're, we're a funny kind of uptight anglo-saxon culture on the whole here (laughs) we get really really upset it's a personal slight when our food's late or wrong yes and we get really upset about it and so we complain as publicly as we can (laughs) But then the minute that's done, we're mortified to think that we might, anyone might read it. So, so you know, we, I personally respond to every review, mm. um, always have. It takes more and more of my time, but it's important. Um, 
And I think over the nearly 10 years, I've had one person respond back to my response. What? Yeah. People almost, they're almost embarrassed about the fact that. They've made a complaint. They made a complaint in the first place. I think genuinely people in the heat of the moment feel aggrieved. Yep. But once it's up there, they don't really want to take it down, but they don't really want to respond necessarily, even when doesn't make them look foolish like often mm. people make it some people don't understand the way delivery works they think it's our drivers they think that uber is just an ordering app and the rest is on us mm. um, but i think there's a certain amount of in a funny way a certain amount of shame once the complaint is out there or the review is out there yeah um so yeah so in some ways my response to reviews is as much about marketing <laughs> as it is about in a review because I don't expect them to ever read it or yeah or change their view necessarily. Yeah, just shows that you care. Yeah. Um, you sort of touched on it there that you're, you know, starting the coming months to to roll out your own app in Victoria. Like was there a moment that you both decided that that was what you wanted to do? Like obviously this has been a plan for two and a half years as you've said. Yeah. How did it come to that? Because – you know, Uber's doing about eighty percent of your sales, roughly, yeah, isn't it? Of delivery side, yeah. yeah. So that's a that's a lot. Yeah. Why did you guys make that make that choice? Yeah. So the the sort of the big picture answer is that the platforms and we had always had an open conversation that together we would be able to work on this. Let's get mm. the volume up, and then there'll be a solution. Like we're smart, they're smart. Over the last, you know, probably about two thousand nineteen, we began to realise that the appetite or well, that conversation from the platforms was drying up and that we began to realise that their focus was shifting elsewhere. Um, at, then layer onto that, COVID hitting in March, April 2020 a, and we, we've got a good network of friends who run restaurants and um, we'll often chat about our challenges together and, and share thoughts and ideas and uh, – I was. I remember standing in uh, outside our restaurant in Glenferry Road, Malvern, with Gabby, who owns Miss Chew, and um, I don't think the first lockdown had been called yet, but the first discussions were being aired about closing restaurants, mm. and he and I were talking about what that would do in terms of that trade turning to delivery, and how as delivery businesses we go to making no money overnight. Yep. Um, we'd be lucky to be able to keep our staff, you know, pay our staff. So that was literally the moment where we said, is there a solution here? If we were to do our own, if we were to build our own tech, could there be a solution that had enough additional margin? Could it be done? And Could it be done in a way that had enough additional margin that we could make a small margin? Because essentially for most restaurants, Delivery is, you know, if we can squeeze two percent profit out of it, that's that's doing well. Yeah, uh, and so we went away and spent probably two months just looking at all the different pieces of that machine we'd have to build. Uh, I think I was secretly hoping the answer would be no, because <laughs> you knew the amount of work it would I be. A, I think I had a better <laughs> idea than Gabby about what about the shitstorm that would be opening. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if the answer was yes, but Gabby, he's a he's incredibly smart guy, and he was able to piece together a, a plan that had all of the parts, and it really hasn't. It's really played out pretty much as he had seen it, uh, and it showed that we could do it. Much like opening a restaurant, we thought we'd do it in a year, and we're now here. We are twenty six, twenty seven months later. Mm. Um, you know, they say in software, they say. Um, plan it, budget it, and then double how long it's going to take and double how much it's going to cost. <laughs> that's about where we're at. Sounds like a restaurant as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so where are you at with that? Like what what is that going to mean for your customers who really want to support Eto? And obviously Miss Chew is going to be part of this as well and I think a couple of other ones, uh, brands yeah. as well, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so where, where we are is we're, we're very close to launch. I think mm. by the time this goes to air we will have launched. Yep. Um, we're going to launch with Miss Chuanetto. With our restaurants end up being fairly close. South Melbourne. We've got we're both in South Melbourne. We're both in the same dark kitchen facility in Brunswick. 
uh, and we and there's a mystery in South Yarra and Edo in Malvern. So we're going to choose one of those areas and launch with just the two of us. And it's really going to be about talking to our customers quite one-on-one um, and finding the customers who are you know, loyal enough to us that they're prepared to shift their way they behave on apps uh, to download our app. Um, the technology will work the same way as an Uber app works for the customer as well as for the restaurant. Mm. Um, and so it, it really is an exercise in that um, kind of micro-marketing um, we don't expect by all means all customers will switch. Uh, if we've got a vision, it's that over time 30% of our customers will move over onto our app uh, away from the big platforms and that would be a significant change to our business and give us a level of sustainability that we seek. And so this is a com- – we've been completely open with Uber Eats from the start on this. We've been We've kept them up to date. Our view has been they're an important partner of ours, mm. uh, but also that, as we said to them, the best scenario for them is that we're a thriving, sustainable restaurant. That that if we if we continue to have these huge proportions of our sales being delivery, and we can't make any profit on it, then that that's not the partner. That's not the right partner for them. Mm. That's not ideal for them either. Yeah. So. Um, so, th- so our plan is that we'll launch for us and um, I'm sure we're going to find a bunch of um, bugs that we've got to fix. Uh, but interestingly, as we've been developing the app, some of our friends who run individual restaurants or groups have been asking us about it and um, so our plan is that we'll give it to them. It's, uh, it's free for us. It's, you know, it's been designed from the ground up to have – no commissions and and it's it's a bit more like a lean piece of SaaS mm. uh, software than it is a platform, even though it operates as a platform. So yep. for us to have some of our friends join us is no skin off our nose and uh, if it helps them as well as us, then that's a bonus. Yeah, happy days. How is the app going to work by way of a UX experience? So am I going to go into it and it's only going to be like you're going to use the same back end and then it's only going to be Eto that I can see or am I able to go into a marketplace type scenario and then order from the different brands that you bring on board? Yeah, the second. It's going to be – it's designed as a marketplace. I mean nice. the, the UX for all the platforms is so similar, I mean crazy similar. Mm. So it would – we decided early on it would be crazy for us to reinvent the wheel. That's the customer experience that they expect. Mm. Uh, and so largely, apart from the fact that we've had a lot of fun with it and we've built a, a great fun brand, um, largely the experience will work the same way. The quirk will be that depending on where you are, because we're not we're not building this to go and recruit 30,000 restaurants, Eto may be the only brand that you see on it if, if we're the only restaurant within four, five kilometres radius of where you live. Yep. The rare, uh, my expectation is for most of the places we are, um, customers, by the time some of our friends join, will likely see two or three or four restaurants on there based on where they are. Yeah. So it won't be an extensive marketplace in those terms, but it will be – there may be some choice. Certainly often a customer will be able to see Eto and Miss Chu. And so there's a bit of a challenge for us because as we talk to our customers, we've got to talk to them about this is something we've built for ourselves – and, or, and then ourselves with Miss Chu or ourselves with Miss Chu and our friends mm. don't expect to go on to download the app and find thousands of restaurants on there. That's not what this is about. This is we'd really appreciate you helping us out because if you want to order it on your couch, we'll get it to you quicker, we'll pay the drivers more, we'll charge you less and we'll be able to make a bit of profit on it. So mm. if, if that's something that you're able to help us with, we'd be forever grateful. That's sort of the pitch. Yeah. How, how big do you think that marketplace could get? Like I, I sort of see similarities between what Shane Dilley did with Provador and yeah. then slowly bringing yeah. on people that he's close to and then yeah. building out this great, you know, group of restaurants that are part of it, right? And yeah. obviously going into Sydney and Brisbane and stuff like that as well. Like yeah. is, that you, is that where you want to go down or is it, is it just bringing on really great quality friends that you know in the industry and then letting them on the marketplace as well? That's a, that's a really good question because – 
Gabby and I define ourselves as reluctant tech entrepreneurs. Yes. We've almost been dragged kicking and screaming into this. Yeah, of course. We were, um, just last week, you know, we were editing some code and saying to each other, how absolutely ridiculous is this? <laughs> you know, this is like, you know, uh, we'll find ourselves mid-conversation about lookups and APIs and <laughs> and think, what, what are we even talking about? You yeah. know? So, um we certainly haven't built this with the expectation of creating a gigantic platform. Initially it was just for us, just for our restaurants. And then as some of our friends started chatting with us, we thought, well, and, you know, frankly asking quite um, enthusiastically to be able to use it, we thought, well, it would build it to help us, so why not help some other people? So. That puts us in an interesting spot that we've started thinking about but not in any real depth, which is, well, what if someone we don't know approaches us? Mm. If they're a friend of a friend, um, are we ideologically opposed? Are we not? Uh, uh, the balance for us is that we want to end up doing the right thing by our restaurants firstly and our customers and then the drivers who work between the two. We want to create a sustainable model that's good for everyone. We have no intention of trying to compete with the big platforms and we certainly don't – they're our partners. Mm. We certainly don't want to be seen as competition to mm. them. Mm -hmm. But naturally there could be some growth in that marketplace. I think we'd probably end up having some pretty robust conversations with the platforms um, and with ourselves and – that's a bit of a we've pushed that kicked that can down the road a little bit. Um, it's very easy to do when there's so many things we have to get right on the tech first before we can even think about it. So yeah, sure. So it has. I mean, there's a there's a great saying in business which is millionaires make money, billionaires make money for other people. <laughs> like what it means is the true reward is not financial. The true reward is comes from helping people, mm. and our model that we're building this piece of software on is a not-for-profit model. It, mm. it, it's not built to make money, mm. which is that's how it can return money back to the restaurant tills. So, I mean, do we end, do we, do we actually want to end up having a thousand restaurants on and spending half of our week running this piece of software that we make no money off? I mean, <laughs> we've got restaurants, we've got businesses we don't make money off. Like, why do we <laughs> what do you want to create want another one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because as as we spoke about last week, like I, I said to you, like you, you're obviously not going to turn the platforms off that you've currently got going, like Uber and stuff like that. You might you might drop off the ones that you know only one percent or two percent of your sales, right? That would make sense. Yeah. But because the risk is obviously to acquire someone, acquire a new customer in order to go through the go through this white label app for yourself and Miss Chu, obviously that costs money to do. And all of a sudden, if you turn off the other delivery platforms, you lose that marketplace and you lose visibility. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's that's the other risk as well, right? Like yep. you have to you, the money you guys will have to spend in order to acquire new customers that come onto the app. Yeah. So, so there's two parts to the way we see that, and and you know the best laid plans fall apart when the first <laughs> shot is fired. So, um, but the way the way we see it is that. However this ends up working, however successful this ends up being for us, it will only be part of our delivery picture. There's always going to be people who love Uber. They love the size of that marketplace. They're brand loyal and we embrace that. We've, we've embraced that whole thing wholeheartedly. We're now, it just so happens we're now in the phase of making it work commercially. Mm. So to make delivery work commercially, we've got to take a proportion of those delivery customers and work out how to make them profitable and we're happy to then see that holistically as our whole delivery business. Some of it makes more margin than others, but overall it's worth doing mm. because you can't, as you say, you can't just switch. If we switch Uber off, those customers aren't all going to come over to us because a lot of them are on there because they're platform loyal and so they should be. Uber's done an amazing job at building that platform and the customer loyalty. So that's the first half of it. The second half of it is the one thing about restaurants is – that we've got this amazing, they're amazing marketing vehicles. Before the platforms came along, all the relationships were always directly with the customers. Yep. And there's a lot of customer loyalty. Customers love us. We love them. And 
we've got an interface in the restaurant. So our marketing expense predominantly is going to, we think is going to be occur in the restaurant mm. and then a bit through social media. Yeah. So we think that um, without our expectation being too lofty, that we'll be able to leverage the costs we've already got in the restaurant to attract customers. We certainly um, have no plans to hire Paris Hilton or Katy Perry. <laughs> or I think Snoop Dogg's after a gig now. He's been dropped. By, oh, yeah, exactly. You know, yes, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> The first question our friends have asked us is, how are you going to go head-to-head with Uber? And and our answer to that is, we're not. Because that we're not a platform model like them. We're a piece of software that leverages the restaurant's relationship with its customers. Yeah. How are you handling the human element, the actual driving of the product? Like, how's that going to come about as well? That's We're still just fine-tuning that. Um, and um, there's a – the basic – um, the values that we started with when we when we create when we sat down to design, see if we could design a system where we wanted to make more money or, or have a, a lower cost per delivery than the platforms do, so the restaurant can make some profit. It, it will never be as good a margin as a dining customer or a takeaway customer, but some profit margin. We want to make it cheaper for the customer and a better experience, so less cold food and cheaper for them. Mm. But the third part of the picture is we want to make sure our drivers are better off. And there's different ways that that can happen, but and different platforms we've learned pay different amounts or have different ways of calculating that. So we set a reasonably high kind of figure that we wanted to to pay the drivers. But the other part of it is we want to um, change, we want to be part of a change of perception so at the moment, the drivers, the way the platforms work is they sort of sit between you and the driver and you and the customer. We want to, our, cons, our idea is that we're not, we're a piece of software. We want to encourage driver-restaurant relationships to be strong. I think mm. if we can have a greater level of respect. And so we want to reward, we want restaurants to reward drivers, our restaurants. We want them to have better relationships. And then we want the restaurant to have a direct relationship with the customer in that delivery so that if something goes wrong currently, the customer has to ring Uber. It's bloody like, awful. They should ring the kitchen. Like yes. we're the best people. And likewise, if we – one of the toughest things, we're, and we're tr- still trying to solve it, if we forget to put the garlic bread in the Uber delivery, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. There's literally nothing we can do. Yeah. I- unless we've got a staff member who's got time to jump in their car and drive it. But we don't have the address and Uber won't give us the address. <laughs> so those sorts of – so it's a long answer but – by having a better ecosystem for everyone, then the driver is automatically in a better place. Yep. And then by having a, a higher base rate, and one of the things we've built into our software, which we don't know if we're creating a, a massive issue for ourselves, is that we're allowing the driver to set their minimum rates so they won't receive a job that's below the minimum that they'd like to be offered. Wow. And it's a... It's pretty revolutionary and it, it might, might be a weak point, but we think that that will help. Um, and so initially um, we see a model where some deliveries will be delivered by our staff. Mm-hmm. Some will be delivered by drivers who are already in the working in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and potentially we're talking, we've been talking with Uber, they have a white label driver product. Mm. And so potentially that might be something that we lean on as well. Our challenge with that is that it, we can't control what the drivers get paid and if they get underpaid, that then undermines that part of our value system. Yeah, and it's back on your brand. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. But, it, but it really means that you, especially if you, let's say you have drivers who are working three or four hours a night for you or whatnot, you've got, we, we almost go back 30 years when delivery drivers for pizza like the brand and extension, like mm. they were like the brand ambassadors, right? Like yeah. the Dougie from Pizza Hut kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Whereas actual connection at that point with the customer, because you're not having that connection in restaurant anymore. Yeah, you have to have it at the front door. Yeah. So that's what I like about it. Yeah, it just seems really exciting. It, early on, we thought that would end up playing out as an important piece. Mm. One of the changes that's happened, and it's a it, working in brand for 30 years, I know how hard it is to change consumer behaviour. Mm. It needs something seismic 
like uh, coronavirus lockdown. <laughs> and one of the changes we've seen is the face-to-face driver customer on deliveries is almost non-existent now. What? So it used to be that most customers would, the driver would ring the doorbell and most customers would answer the door or yep. come out and greet them at the bottom of the steps to their apartment. Or, uh, and that almost doesn't happen anymore. Wow. The, the driver's, the, the customer preference and the driver's instructed to leave it on the doorstep, sometimes ring the bell, sometimes not ring the bell. The app informs the customers. The mm-hmm. customers wait until the driver's left. And th- there was a coronavirus um, fear around that initially, but it's become a consumer habit. And so the drivers now, if you're delivering food, you might go a whole night without being face-to-face with a customer. What do you think that is? I think for some people, uh, I, I put our consumer behaviour, I keep using the phrase, down to our screwed up Anglo-Saxon yeah. heritage. And I know that we're a multicultural society. Yeah, yeah. The melting pot hasn't done anything to change some of our screwed up ways of thinking. Mm. I think we love the fact that we can sit on our couch, be lazy as all hell and have someone go and pick up our meal from our favourite restaurant and bring it to our door so we don't have to get off our ass. But we actually feel a little bit uncomfortable with that we made someone do that for us. Yeah, right. This has been my sense is the interaction has always been a bit awkward between customer and driver. Yeah. Especially because we know a lot of people now sort of know they're being underpaid. Yeah, that's a good point. It's kind of like, you know, do it by Nike if it's made in a sweatshop. Yeah, that's a really good point. We ha- customers, to meet a driver at the door face-to-face is almost like coming face-to-face with the fact that you're part of a, an equation that probably isn't fair. Mm. And I think we would rather avoid that as I, I say we collectively. Uber Eats brought in tipping for restaurants mm. and what they realised was drivers were stopping, people were stopping tipping drivers and they're tipping restaurants and pretty um, – Pretty generously, we were collecting all of our Uber Eats tips for our Christmas party, and um, I can't remember how long it ran for—less than a year. We were on track to have one hell of a Christmas party. <laughs> That's um, good. But Uber pulled the restaurant tips, and I think it was because the drivers just weren't getting tips, and wow, it's sort of part of the way they see the whole driver remuneration. So you know, I'm a consumer. I'm feeling a bit guilty. I know I'm not going to tip you. Um, it's actually easier for me just to wait for you to leave and then I can go and pick it up. I I know that doesn't cast consumers in a terribly good light, but mm. that's my best guess. Yeah. Well, I didn't actually think about the driver element um, in, in that way because obviously when you look at fast food brands like Hungry Jacks and McDonald's, there's a reason why they put kiosks in front of humans who you can order through because a person is going to order – more if they're putting it through a screen than if they're telling a human what they actually want to order because mm. it's less shameful until they get their product. Mm. But if you're doing it through a delivery app and you literally do not see a person, then that shame is sort of gone, right? Sort of non-existent. I mean, guilt and shame are huge drivers of behaviour, far more than um, making people happy, doing the right thing, enjoyment. Yes. <laughs> It's just the way we're wired. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's that whole – I think the growth of delivery has really played to that. And it sounds like I'm coming down on consumers. I'm not. I, mm. Consumers behave how – we all want to make ourselves happy mm. and we all behave in a way that gives that the best shot. Mm. Um, there's been something about delivery apps – that especially in Australia, I mean, we've got the second highest delivery rate per um, population density of any city in the world after London. Mm. There's something about that whole mix and the way it ties in with consumer mindset that works really well. Mm. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's been so elastic. The number of times I've met with Uber over the years and they've said, do you think we can charge this? Do you think we can put out... Because people may not remember, Uber didn't charge delivery fees for six months. It was free as a a way to build market share. Incredibly successful. Yes. We used to hold a competition as which restaurant would get the lowest order and the winner over that whole period was someone ordered a bottle of water. 
So yes. rather than going to a sink to fill up a glass, <laughs> I ordered a bottle of water and they paid three ninety nine and got it delivered free. Crazy. But it, but successful in terms of market share, um, incredibly unsuccessful in terms of educating the consumer that we should be paying a driver $12 for a delivery mm. and the restaurant doesn't have the profit margin to pay any of that. Mm. But that's... I got one that could beat that. I was advising a restaurant, and they were t- and during the free delivery part, they were telling me that someone had ordered a can of Coke for a dollar fifty. Wow! In the apartment block directly behind them, <laughs> that was fifty meters away, and they picked it up, and then dropped it at the person, and then came back to do another order. Like it was within yeah. a minute. Like Great. it was just oh, this is pathetic. Well, but um, <laughs> you know, the way the the um, the reward. Cells in the brain would have been popping oh, for that person. Like 100%. Just, <laughs> he probably put it on social media. Oh, yeah. Look, Guys, what, I look got, what I got. I got a can of Coke. took five minutes to get here. Yep. I didn't pay a cent extra. Yeah. Like, it's just appalling. Yeah. Um, let's talk about automation, especially in driving and, and that kind of stuff now that we talked about, you know, human drivers. Um, there's been a lot of excitement around automated driving solutions for the industry over the last couple of years, especially in the U.S., um, and technology like we we were talking last week when we spoke about, you know, drones and, and um, bots and those kind of things that would run along the, the sidewalk. Like what you're thinking about that coming to Australia and actually being built out because obviously you've got such a good relationship with, with Uber Eats and being really yeah. close to them around that. Like, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. It wouldn't be an understatement to say that our business strategy is based on it arriving at some point. Right. That we um, – we have these um, these three um, intersecting lines in our business strategy. One is wholesome eating. So our belief is that if our food is as good or better than you could cook at home for a reasonable price, then you have very little reason to not come and buy dinner from us hmm. because we can probably cook better than you. <laughs> um, the second um, intersecting line is convenience and delivery Growth is, dri- is driven by convenience, convenience slash reward. Yep. And the third one is technology. And so our belief is the greatest change to the economics of delivery will occur when driver's delivery arrives. And it's a, in some ways it's a sensitive topic because uh, there's a lot of people make some or all of their living from delivery. Mm. Personally, I think the um, – the most likely technologies are going to really only cover the first two kilometres from a restaurant mm-hmm. and that there'll still be drivers to do two to five, two to eight. It might cover three kilometres and you'll be able to order from your restaurant from 15 kilometres away. Mm. So per delivery, the, there might be a model where the riders, the drivers are more or less currently employed in the current rates but they make more money a trip. Mm-hmm. So that might end up being a win. We did a. We had some some MBAs do a research project for us on this at the end of 2019, and their research uh, results were that they believe the most likely scenario for Australia is going to be delivery bots as a technology that drones are just going to require too many changes in terms of airspace managing airspace, mm. and we hear these stories about Nando's did a did a drone trial in yeah. Canberra. GYG doing it and doing it, yeah. It's always in the same area and that's because <laughs> there's only one wedge of space over metropolitan Australia that doesn't have a flight path and that's in, that's this space in Canberra. Right. And so they're, they're not telling us that this was a great, you know, <laughs> successful trial but we can only do it in this one wedge <laughs> of all of the airspace. And so, so we yeah. think drones going to be out. It comes down to driverless cars or delivery bots. We think the appetite for legislation change of driverless cars in Australia is is not strong enough for that to to be quick enough. Mm. And what we're seeing uh, in technology development in the states in delivery bots is moving pretty fast. Uh, Uber Eats this year will do their first whole city trial using delivery bots. We see that's a massive step up from the odd pizza shop or on campus. And that means that the technology is going to be testing real world traffic, pedestrians, distances, impediments. And 
we think that is incredibly exciting. In America, the industry, the automated delivery bot industry, talks about $1 delivery. So the cost to the platform or the cost to the restaurant for each delivery will be one US dollar. Wow. Now, whether they can achieve that goal, it's a really great thing to put in your prospectus to investors. Mm. Whether they can achieve that or not, we don't know. But even if it's $2, that completely changes the economics for food for local food delivery. Not mm. five kilometres, seven kilometres, but the first three kilometres. The other thing that it changes is, you know, as we've watched the space, it's gone from five or six companies developing the technology to 50 or 60 and they've gone from being worth 10 million to being worth hundreds of millions. So there's some serious investors coming into the space that makes it more likely to succeed, we think. Mm. But also they're, they're commoditizing the technology and um, the conversations we've been able to have with Uber is that they are not overtly investing because they believe the tech's going to arrive and it's going to, they're going to buy from the best they're not going to own it. Mm. So that means likewise that each platform might have their own delivery bot partner, but there will be other people who set up uh, independence, if you like. So we might as a group be able to, we're hoping, be able to buy our own uh, automated delivery. And uh, if we can do that at, you know, $3, then the customer will be paying less than they are now for delivery and the restaurant will be able to make full margin on their food. Mm. There's an interesting kind of point when that happens as to whether the delivery platforms pass on that savings to the restaurant and the consumer or whether they take it all for themselves. It, that must be very tempting given mm. the pressure from shareholders. That would change their business overnight. Mm. If they don't pass it on to the restaurants, then more restaurants are going to have to do their own delivery because the, the gap between what you can do for yourself and what you will do on the platforms is going to just be massive. Mm. For, for restaurants to make full margin on delivery, will it, it, it will change the world for restaurateurs. There's, there's been a bit of press but not a lot of press but post-COVID, but even in the run-up to COVID, the vast majority of restaurants, and I've worked as a consultant, as you have, but mm. the vast majority of restaurants don't make any money. You yeah. Know, the number of guys I've worked with who've, who are running restaurants that are losing two or $3,000 a month and putting that money in out of their own pockets because of the, they invested 800000 in fitting it out or a million and change in fitting it out. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. But that's the story. That's the untold story of restaurants. There's, there's probably too many restaurants in Australia and too much of the market has gone to delivery. Mm. We've gone from delivery being 40% to 70% in mm. some of our restaurants. That's mm. just That means we got a lot less customers coming in and paying, A, enjoying food as it's meant to be enjoyed straight out of the oven, but B, um, we, we, you know, we're paying uh, you know, around 30% to the delivery platform. So that's our profit margin gone. Yeah. My last question to you, Dave, is like it's sort of twofold, right? A bit like what you just touched on and something I've been thinking about as we've been talking today. Like is there a reason why you just haven't made this a dark kitchen brand and had no customer shop front? And the second part from that is like moving on from that, like what are you looking forward to with Eto and what are your plans for the future with the brand? Yeah, so, so we have a dark kitchen and we're soon to open a second one but it's going to be a hybrid. Our model has always been that once the restaurant – is making profit, then the delivery is the cream. But the margin isn't there in a delivery. If every order you get has, you know, 25 to 30% in commissions, then there's, there's a bit of a, a myth that you're going to save on rent and you're going to save on staff costs. And you get, but those things just don't add up to 30%. Mm. And when every order comes with that commission already taken out of it, that model struggles to work. You need really high volumes and really low costs for it to even work a bit. Mm. So part of us doing our own delivery is that it potentially, it opens up the potential for us to do more dark kitchens. Mm. Um, our dark kitchen currently is in probably the, um, the area of Melbourne that has the highest volume per capita. And so it start, it just makes sense, but it's not, nothing that we're doing is, is, buying us a you know, Caribbean island. <laughs> so um, so dark kitchens at the moment 
not necessarily in our plans, but um, but the one we got, we're joining in North Melbourne, Easy Street, is a hybrid, and we and we quite like that as a model. Mm-hmm. It's a bit closer to restaurants, mm. um, and so our future um, for Eto is we we're growing pretty slowly. We've been around nearly ten years. We'll have by the time we open our new Richmond restaurant in October. Um, We'll have six. Well, that's a pretty slow growth mm. for a restaurant group. Sure. But um, we're old-fashioned. We believe in not losing money. So that kind of constrains growth. Yes. Um, we don't like bringing we, – we like controlling what we do. So we've never brought investors in. We don't really like debt. And so – and we love we love what we do and we don't want to change that. So our, our, our vision is we're going to keep growing maybe one or two a year. Um, in Melbourne initially, and then we might go. We quite like Brisbane. We think we mm. do well in Brisbane. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so our goal is to keep growing whilst we're really loving it, because at the end of the day, restaurants are a passion business. If we don't love it, our staff won't love it. Mm. And if our staff don't love it, then I can guarantee our customers aren't going to get the experience they get. Yeah, they're not going to love it. And and I've seen businesses be sold. And the passion just disappears with the founders, mm. and they and they never, they never do as well. And so, the the number one steering factor for us is that we're going to keep growing, but we're going to grow until the point where if we start feeling like we don't love it anymore, then we're going to just stick where we are. Like that's our that's our driving force. It's a good way to be. Are, are you thinking or with your um with your growth plans? Are you thinking to go? Out of suburban as well because I think yeah. – because obviously you're in a city now, right? Yeah. But you could dominate the out suburban market. Yeah. Yeah, we could. We, we talk about – we've got one customer who drives from Bandura to Malvern almost every week and he's like – It's a long drive. It's a long drive. <laughs> he does it at night. Right. Okay. But, but he's like, when are you guys coming out here? <laughs> wow. And, um, and so, um, so next year at, at this stage, the first – um, new Eto we've got on the boards for next year, but it, and it's not it's set in stone. Mm. Is an is an outer suburb, just to trial it. It's 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 an example of our philosophy of prototyping. But it's pretty hard to prototype a restaurant. Like you yeah, can't, most definitely. If you're going to go all in, then mm. um, we're investing in a full fit out and a lease, and um, it'll either work or it won't work. We we it's a risk. So, sure. Um, but, but but it's on the boards to, yep. to trial that. And we think um, – and, and then that will change our plans. There's a – our philosophy on brand is we're best to build a brand in a city mm. and then that will halo it as we then move out of suburbs will be an inner city brand. Uh, it's really hard to go the other way. Um, so we feel like we've done that. We'll, six will have done that um, and we're ready to try one. Um, we've got a site in mind and we're chatting with them and um, – yeah, stay tuned. I'm excited. Um, Dave, I've learned a lot today and that's fantastic. Um, I know a lot of people listening to the podcast would have learned a lot today, especially about delivery, which I think something in the industry we don't talk about nearly enough. It's so important um, to viability and um, for our industry to move forward and um, I just appreciate your thoughts today. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, what's the best way that people can find out about Eto and, um, and get in contact with you? The best, best way is to go onto our website, mm-hmm. which is eto.com.au, or to stay up to date, follow us on Insta. Like as, as we come up with anything, as we launch our delivery, as we launch Easy Street, we'll be posting all the time. So Yeah, so perfect. Right. In the show notes of this podcast, as always, Dave Ansett, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Raw. Brought to you by Lightspeed and the Poe Network. We hope you really enjoyed the episode and we'd love for you to leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. It would mean a lot to us and we'd love to hear your feedback on this series. To find out more about Lightspeed and how they can ignite your business in hospitality, you can find them at lightspeedhq.com.au. Thanks so much for tuning to another episode and until next time, stay well, everyone.
Aussies love discovering new restaurants, and Open Table is Australia's most visited dining reservation platform, with more than 1 million hungry diners looking for inspiration each month. On average, guests booking on Open Table spend 49% more than walk ins. Open Table's world class table management technology ensures your seats are optimized front of house to seat more diners, saving you time to focus on what you do best. And it doesn't stop at the end of a meal. Open Table's relationship management tools keep you connected with your guests, helping you turn first time diners into regulars. Visit restaurant.opentable.com.au to connect with your local Open Table restaurant expert to learn more. Open Table, empowering restaurants to do what they do best. 